Welcome to Friday. It's a new year, you know. Welcome to Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. Good to have you here in this uh, this new year. A lot of stuff new. New mayor for the city of Seattle. And by the way, you'll be able to ask that mayor a question next week here on KUOW when Seattle Mayor Bruce Harrell will appear on our new local noon program, Soundside, with your host, the wonderful Libby Dankman. That show starts at noon. Uh, so on Tuesday the 11th, Mayor Harrell is going to be here at 1230. Listen to that show every day, noon, right here on KUOW. Now, as for this here program, every Friday is when we get together with local journalists on Week in Review and make sense of the week together. What happened? What does it mean? Will we ever be able to drive over the Cascades again? And I have my journalist panel with me, Seattle Times reporter Esme Jimenez. Esme, great to have you along again. Hey, thanks for having me. Everett Herald, City's reporter, Isabella Breda. Isabella, welcome back to the show. Hey, happy to be here. And Public Cola's Paul Farouk Kiefer. Paul, great to see you again. Pleasure to be here. Let's uh, let's get into it. Our top story this week, a, a Seattle police monitor says during the protests of 2020, on the night that police abandoned their Capitol Hill precinct and the protesters were starting to set up the Capitol Hill organized protest zone, a group of Seattle officers concocted a hoax. They faked a radio, a police radio conversation in which they warned that right wingers, some of them possibly armed, were gathering downtown, maybe looking for confrontation. And one officer radio, just uh, be advised, the group is very boisterous uh, tonight, so if you get some calls about some uh, kind of menacing verbiage, that's all it is. Hearing from the Proud Boys group, they're not very happy with their uh, response in the audience down here. They may be looking for somewhere else for confrontation. Break. I got that audio from the artist known as Speck, who is, has been calling BS on that hoax for something like a year and a half. Uh, Paul, why did these officers make that choice to talk about possibly armed Proud Boys in that moment back in June of 2020? Yeah, so the ruse was the brainchild, at, at, at least according to the Office of Police Accountability, of um, a, a guy named Brian Grennan, then the chief of the East, uh, sorry, the captain of the East Precinct, um, later promoted to assistant chief, and he has now left um, SPD. Um, and by the accounts of, of OPA investigators, Office of Police Accountability investigators, it, the idea was to convince protesters that there were more officers on the street monitoring, you know, elsewhere in the city than there were in reality. It was a way to to give the the appearance of having having beefed up the ranks, and uh, and it was it was a also a way to potentially draw demonstrators' attention away from these precinct. Um, and it wasn't just the the Proud Boys ruse that there were there were sort of other elements of the misinformation campaign, some of which were more kind of seemingly innocuous, like talking about their meals, um, you know, what what they had eaten. It was just a way to kind of amp up the number of voices going on over over the um, radio transmission so that so that uh, they could seemingly beef up SPD's numbers. OK, be, seeming to beef up the numbers, uh, seeming to have more officers out in force. You also mentioned drawing some protesters away. This is this is an important debate. Um, I I got the impression from some of the the Seattle. I read the Seattle Times uh, uh, piece first about this um, these revelations, this Office of Police Accountability investigation, and the captain talks about at some points talks about wanting to 
encourage some of the demonstrators to split off from the crowded, chaotic, uh, pressure-filled Capitol Hill precinct area to split off and maybe go try to confront these Proud Boys demonstrators, who, of course, they wouldn't find, so um, they would just sort of to occupy them. Is that is my understanding right? Yeah, more or less. I mean, the, yeah. I mean, if you if you create a distraction like theoretically a clash with an armed group of a possibly armed group of Proud Boys, then you can at least break up the larger group of people, you know, congregated at Cal, Cal Anderson Park into smaller, discrete groups of protesters. And since at the time SPD was sort of uh, in a state of chaos, I mean, not chaos, I think that's that's a bit of an over-exaggeration, a bit of an exaggeration, but, you know, given that at the moment they were sort of in panic mode, um, it was to their benefit in theory, in theory, yeah. uh, to uh, use psyops, use use mis- a misinformation campaign to, to st- stand in for uh, the kind of distractions that physical officers could could uh, create but you know they're just right and i, I want to get other people's take on this uh, ask me maybe you want to weigh in but th- this is key because very interesting to me at least because some uh, skeptics critics of the police department are saying actually they think the police wanted to foment more chaos and and so they'd have just even more to blame on the protesters. Did you have any thoughts about this question of whether the police, we, we can, we can, we're going to get into whether it's ever okay to lie to the public, but, but, but first this question of what the motive really was, do you have any observations? Ask me. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm, I was reporting on the ground there in 2020 for KUW at the time. So I, I just remember there was a lot of chaos. There was tension, there was fear. A lot of it was through live stream, through Twitter uh, there was the pandemic occurring on top of the protests. So tensions were high everywhere. Uh, I think with people that are paid to be law enforcement specifically to then miscommunicate and potentially whether or not the intention is to actually foment fear or stress or chaos, if the consequences lead to that, that's something that should be learned from most definitely. Um, I was talking to an editor and we were both reflecting on those, that time. Um, and she made the really good point where she was like, you know, sometimes people will make kind of the case like, oh, there was bad actors on all sides. Um, but at the end of the day, like the, the police are paid by the city, right? They have a union. They're very different than protesters, even though, of course, there were some protesters that were very violent um, and used bats on police officers or, um, yeah, were, were violent in other ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, Isabella, any reactions from you You're with the with the Everett Herald? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure I've heard the argument that, you know, um, we're looking to police and law enforcement in general to sort of control the chaos, like Esme was saying, um, seeing that they have some degree of responsibility to ensure that people aren't going to get hurt and the the ruse that whether or not that was intentional, that it caused, you know, had the potential to create more hurt than helping the situation, so... Right. Something to look into. I mean, yeah. undeniably, it was an inciting factor for people arming themselves more heavily at, at, in the in Cal Anderson Park, and undeniably, it was sort of a use of of something akin to you know battlefield tactics in the context of civilian protests. And so, you know, one way or another, it was going to escalate. Yeah, maybe some more people armed themselves. Protesters armed themselves than would have otherwise. We don't know. The stranger uh, reported that demonstrators were were carving out and defending the chop the the protest zone 
partly because they had heard that the police, or rather that, that, that Proud Boys might come and do something like set fire to the precinct and blame it on Black Lives Matter protesters. So meanwhile, I, I want to talk about whether, when police are ever allowed to lie. Um, Paul, the, the Office of Police Accountability said that the police can be allowed to lie, but that the Proud Boys part made the situation worse and violated policy. What what will you explain when police are allowed to perpetrate a uh, yeah I guess whether you call it a battlefield tactic or a hoax? Well, it, and it sort of depends on the context. Like yeah. you know, for instance, police are, are legally allowed to lie if they're working undercover. You know, that's that's a context in which they're allowed to to create a ruse. And in some contexts, it's legal to you know, in theory, prevent or to protect life and and you know, to protect to protect the lives of civilians. But the line is drawn at a place that you know seems kind of arbitrary. But in this case, is it the line is pretty clear? Um, it, if if a ruse is so shocking and fundamentally unfair that it undermines public safety and public trust and and et cetera, then it crosses the line into being neither appropriate nor legal. Um, and in this case, there's pretty much no one in the Office of Police Accountability or in city government or even within the upper ranks of SPD who um, considered that ruse to be appropriate or legal um, or within policy. And uh, I mean, when it was initially conceived, it was just create and when, when Grennan pitched it, it was just kind of create a, a ruse. And then the officers riffed and came up with the proud boy angle without you know, much supervision. So the, the, the onus is being placed on the supervisors who basically said, create a ruse. And then it escalated to the point of, of, you know, prompting people to panic that there would be an armed confrontation. And ask me, what does it say that the office of police accountability so far is not recommending any discipline? I have not been covering this uh, consequences that have been coming up now. The thing though, that I was thinking about is how, if the goal really is to de-escalate, to be able to handle tense confrontations. I'm thinking of Bellevue police as well. I was there in June, 2020. And one of the things that they did, right, is the chief came down, talked to people. There was, at the time, there was also tear gas. Uh, people had broken into, I think, the mall down there. People were running around. There was a very chaotic scene. But still, the chief came down, even as people were pointing cameras at him and saying like, hey, where do you stand? He took a knee. Um, and his officers took a knee. And then immediately they started having more conversations with protesters. That small action immediately changed the, the entire dynamic of what was happening, right? Even though there was very similar um, violence um, and crime occurring at the time. So I'm curious about what tactics could have been used here and why, why the chain happened that instead of going towards those tactics, right, a different choice was made altogether. Isabella, what questions do you still have? I mean, I certainly have plenty of questions going along with that. As me said, um, you know, in some of the smaller cities in Snohomish County, I wasn't up here yet. Um, but some of the tactics were officers were working to engage with the community, try to figure out um, what's going on, what the needs are. And when things would start to get more hectic, there'd be a conversation rather than a confrontation. Um, and obviously that's easier to manage when there's a smaller group of protesters and um, the tensions aren't quite as high, but before it gets to that point, you know, there should be some consideration of that before moving to waiting until the tensions are extremely high and doing something that's potentially going to cause, again, like I mentioned before, greater harm and ultimately not a resolution. So it seems like, you know, there needs to be greater evaluation of, you know, what is the role of law enforcement in these sorts of situations if, if we're not holding them in any sense um, accountable or questioning the judgment of 
at the time. Paul, this investigation by the Seattle Office of Police Accountability was finished months ago before the election. It wasn't released until now. We have a new mayor, among other uh, officials, in place. What do you expect from Mayor Harrell, now the police chief Diaz, et cetera? Well, so the Mayor Harrell's sort of go-to for policing, um, you know, for policing wisdom is is Deputy Mayor Monisha Harrell, who was um, until recently the uh, a part of the the consent decree monitoring team um, that worked within the the context of, of Seattle's federal consent decree to um, supervise reforms to the police department. In that role. Uh, or I guess the, the consent decree monitoring team at large um, has very recently uh, within, uh, within the past few months kind of vocally raised the point that SPD's protest response writ large kind of gives pause um, in to the federal court and, you know, in the process of, uh, of, of ending the, the consent decree. So I think from the perspective of, of someone like, the deputy mayor it's worth the ruse itself as as the the primary focus when trying to figure out what kind of large cool changes need to take place in sbd i think the the protest response is that is the forest the ruse is a tree and within within the ruse and within the, the sbd's protest response at large we see this pattern of command staff viewing protesters as something akin to enemy combatants instead of civilians or instead of kind of people that they have a duty to protect. So I don't think that necessarily like going forward, you know, SPD is, is likely to start implementing stricter training on ruses, but I think going forward, the focus will be on figuring out how to um, train out the, the instinct from command staff to treat large scale demonstrations as fundamentally a us versus them, a good guys versus bad guys. Um, and instead focus on something that the office of Inspect the inspector general has pitched which is you know not protest control or protest management but sort of protest facilitation um exactly how that works out is sort of nebulous because it's you know it, it's all very much reliant on um personalities i mean at the end of the day a lot of the you know a lot of what makes the, you know, uh, the culture of a police department is, is dependent on the personalities of the people in charge. And so as much as you can say, you know, the Herald administration can steer things within the police department towards, you know, trainings about how to be collaborative with demonstrators, it, at the end of the day, what you're trying to deal with is, is the basic instincts of people who under pressure are going to make decisions that can lead to things like the Proud Boys ruse. And, and I don't know whether there's any concrete promise that a mayoral administration can make that they're going to be able to fix those instincts, but they can make a broad goal. Okay. Well, we're going to hear a lot more about that. We've got lots of other news to cover. Uh, I mean, some lingering questions in this. Is this investigation going to escalate above the, um, above the Office of Police Accountability? Does any of us have anything to do with the mysteriously deleted text messages of uh, the, the mayor and the police chief and the and the fire chief, and and we're going to talk to, I guarantee that we will discuss this with Mayor Bruce Harrell when he joins us on Tuesday, again, on our new uh, local noontime news program, Soundside. He's going to be on the show on Tuesday, and uh, and we'll keep watching all that. You are listening to Week in Review on KUOW. I'm Bill Radke here. We've got our guests. We actually have an extra panelist. We have Esme Jimenez. We have Paul Kiefer. 
We have Isabel Breda. We have Isabella's cat, which I'd be happy to hear from. Don't 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 muzzle that cat. I, I enjoy a good cat meow. I have a couple myself. Uh, we're going to get back to covering the big stories of the week, what happened this week, and, and what it all means. Don't go away, and we can review. I'm Bill Radke. I'm with Publicola's police accountability reporter, Paul Kiefer. We've got Everett Herald, City's reporter, Isabella Breda, Seattle Times mental health reporter, Esme Jimenez, and we're figuring out what happened this week and what it all means. Governor Inslee says he's considering sending in the National Guard to help hospitals overwhelmed by COVID patients. The leader of the State Hospital Association, Cassie Sauer, says that Hospitals are treating nearly 1,400 people, uh, more than double from last month. There's been a huge jump in people, 25 to 49-year-old, coming to the emergency room looking for minor COVID care. There's a federal law that requires us to screen and stabilize every patient who comes, and um, it is causing a huge backlog in our ERs. It's jeopardizing care for people with true emergencies, and it is totally burning out our staff. Right. That minor COVID care, you've heard a lot about how the uh, Omicron variant is is relatively mild. But when you increase the numbers like this, then you you get uh, you get crowds, you get some people going to hospitals, um, whether they are in an emergent situation or not. You've got health providers having to stay home and isolate because of COVID. You've got healthcare workers just emotionally and physically exhausted. And uh, Governor Inslee points out that calling out the National Guard doesn't just fix all that. If you have a nurse who's in the Guard and they're working at a hospital in their civilian life, so taking people out of the civilian workforce in healthcare, plugging them back in, that doesn't solve the problem. Esme Jimenez, we are once again playing catch up. We don't have enough hospital capacity. You can't find a COVID test or appointment. What do you think the lesson is here? The lesson is that we haven't learned our lesson. Mm-hmm. I think we've been seeing, right, this is the fifth or sixth wave. And um, two big things that I think about are one, lag time between variants, how we communicate. And usually the media has one to two weeks, right, where we're saying, hey, we don't know yet. Stand by. There's a new variant. We don't know exactly what it is, but stand by. People sometimes follow up on that. Sometimes they don't. Then we start getting a little bit more information from studies, from scientists who say, yes, you know, this is a milder variant or this variant is more about coughing, this variant is worse still for the unvaccinated as always. Um, And then we actually have those catch up and the numbers show up on our data dashboards and then journalists will go back out and report that. And by that time, right, might be three, four, five, six weeks. And now people are reading like, oh, are we supposed to be using different masks? Oh, where do I get a test? What are the symptoms for COVID again? And so that entire life cycle of getting information out is too slow. It's not nimble enough. Um, And I'm saying that as a reporter, and I think about how I can message better to the communities. I think more about how public health can message information out. Um, Like, what can we do to be more nimble? We've been through five or six waves of this now. It doesn't seem like it's going to stop this year. So what are we going to do differently about that? Um, Yeah, those are my initial thoughts. Yeah, and I should always mention that uh, when I talk about whether the Omicron variant is mild or not, it, it it depends on so much. And, and a big factor Absolutely. is whether you're vaccinated, whether you're boosted, but also you could be vulnerable, you could be older, you could be you could be a young child, et cetera. Um, the state is uh, is seeing more than 10,000 new cases a day. 
Uh, more than 1,000 COVID patients hospitalized over the past week. Uh, UW Medicine is postponing some elective surgeries. Uh, patients can only have one visitor uh, for an hour during visiting hours. You've got the state um, saying that they've got uh, five and a half million at-home COVID tests on the way here, and those are going to be distributed to schools and underserved communities through a website that'll be up soon. Uh, the state's getting more more KN95 masks to give out to underserved communities and K through 12 schools. King County's bought another 400,000 COVID test kits on top of 300,000 that it had already ordered. Uh, Isabella, what is the picture where you are in Snohomish County? Yeah, so um, someone was on Twitter the other day, but they posted like drone footage of uh, the waiting line at a COVID testing site that had wrapped around like multiple city blocks. I mean, that's the situation pretty much everywhere. Um, I was possibly exposed and just trying to find a test anywhere is uh, pretty much impossible unless you just sit on the site and keep refreshing and see if someone cancels theirs. Uh, you know, our county health officer just told one of our reporters earlier this week that it's possible that like up to 5% of residents have contracted COVID just in the last two weeks. Um, and that's in our county in entirety. And uh, so I've been covering the city of Edmonds as they've been debating whether or not to continue allowing their little parklet program. It's actually called Straighteries there. And it's just outdoor dining, like in parking spaces along the streets. And this is something that I don't think anyone anticipated would be going on this long into the pandemic. You know, mm. we're going into our second anniversary of COVID being around and um, we're still having to do these measures that people thought were just temporary things. And, um, you know, there are city council members debating the fact that, well, you know, indoor dining is still permitted under the governor's orders. And there's a sense of people just being fatigued, having pandemic fatigue and wanting things to go back to normal, which is obviously, um, you know, contributing to the rise in cases beyond just this super highly um, contagious variant. But there's council members debating whether or not, you know, it's important to continue having these uh, creative measures because, you know, it's not as deadly or the numbers don't show that it's as deadly right now. And I think, again, like as we was saying, we need to have that messaging of sharing, you know, what people's risks are, the how the vaccine does help in those cases or at least allow for a more mild case of COVID and um, people are aware of what resources are out there because it seems like, you know, counties and cities for the most part are doing that they can, um, but they're clearly strapped for resources. Mm -hmm. Paul, you report on the criminal legal system. What is Omicron doing to jails and prisons? So there is a, a relatively, relatively smaller outbreak going on at, at the Monroe Correctional Facility up in Snohomish County right now. Um, and that involves, um, at, at, at most recent numbers I saw were 67 confirmed cases. Um, people who test positive are being placed in what were previously, um, well, they're, they're still isolation cells. They were they were used for things like disciplinary solitary confinement, but now they're, they're functioning as quarantine cells. Um, but here in, in King County, three days after you know, actually fewer than three days after Christmas, short, like just after Christmas in a three day span, 20 people in King County jail custody um, tested positive. Um, that was the first kind of big surge for months over the summer and the early fall um, tests or positive cases fell down to 10 or below consistently for a while they were in the single digits, the low single digits. Um, so we're going to see and we already have seen the omicron wave arrive in a, one of the most vulnerable concentrated populations in the county it's sort of jails and shelters are the two most vulnerable places and this comes just as the king county um 
Department of Adult and Juvenile Detention and uh, Jail Health, which is run through King County Public Health, had um, just kind of reached a milestone in vaccinations um, within the jail. They had reached about a 65% vaccination rate, which is lower than the county average. Um, and it's not a perfect uh, data point because the jail population changes. I mean, the average person spends 30 days in jail. So if you're looking at a, a vaccination percentage in August when things were you know well below 60% versus now, um, you're not looking at the same group of people. So keeping vaccinations high is, is a, you know, it's a moving target, but one way or another, it was, it was sort of a, a moment of victory for jail health that was then quickly cut short by the arrival of the Omicron wave. And as we know, Omicron is, is um, people who are vaccinated are still vulnerable to Omicron. So jail health is probably not going to give up their vaccination campaign anytime soon. They're vaccinating, they're offering, offering vaccines to people at intake and at like, uh, medical check-ins and, and all that, but um, it's it's still a, a vulnerable population with very high turnover and, uh, you know, one of the, the larger public health challenges that the county will have to deal with. Speaking of public health challenges, Paul, you mentioned that, that another of the most dangerous places uh, from a COVID pr- point of view is shelters, which, which really you know, came into focus over the last uh, many, many days. We're just now defrosting from the the, the, the sub-zero temperatures or sub-freezing, I should say. And uh, we had the, uh, you know, the head of the King County Regional Homelessness Authority reminding us how, you know, how deadly that is for some people. Exposure deaths actually start at around 40 degrees, 40 to 45 degrees. So when we talk about 20 uh, 25 degrees, you know, between five and 10 degrees at night. Um, these are really lethal conditions. So let's talk about how much our governments and and private uh, businesses and people were able to help their neighbors. Uh, Isabella, how much how much was the Snohomish County area able to to step in in an emergency weather situation? Yeah, so it's actually been pretty heartbreaking learning about what systems are in place to support and take care of people when it's freezing out and it was like seven degrees in Arlington one morning when I woke up just looking at the temperature and uh, at that point there was absolutely no emergency cold weather shelter in North Snohomish County Um, and this is something that you know zero there was not even one Um, that people would have to go to East County there was a shelter in Monroe and there's also one in Snohomish and they're both operated by Volunteers of America volunteers and they're held in churches so it's really minimal space. It's kind of just like an ad hoc program. Um, you know, if they don't have enough volunteers, they can't necessarily continue the program. Um, so it's all kind of just teetering on the edge there. And again, um, for someone who's unhoused to be able to get a bus pass to go that distance out there and maybe be stranded for days away from all of the resources that they're connected with, it makes it pretty impossible to actually get access to shelter. And people were choosing to, you know, alive however they could. I know there are people um, out on the streets at night just like using hot chocolate from the gas station to keep their hands warm or whatever they could do to, you know, stay alive essentially. And, you know, nonprofit leaders were warning about this over the summer. There were some that were trying to get a uh, shelter project established in Marysville that could, you know, help fill that gap to some extent because, you know, churches had essentially dropped out of that area saying that, you know, we don't have the resources and we're looking for support from the city. Um, and that just wasn't coming around. And 
then when COVID hit, it obviously complicates things because they're, you know, most of the time they're church volunteers, they're church goers, they're, uh, they don't have background in public health and they don't know how to handle these sorts of situations. So it's just a lot of pressure coming down on nonprofits and that shelter community didn't go through because there was a lot of pushback from a nearby neighborhood. And, um, you know, those nonprofit leaders felt that the city didn't do enough to educate uh, people living in the area on the importance of having that there. And, you know, the result of that is ultimately people are vulnerable to death because of the weather. Um, and finally, one church did come around in Marysville and open their doors as a cold weather shelter uh, just for this year. And again, it becomes an issue of transportation because they're kind of out there and isolated away from where a lot of people find warmth during the day, which is like libraries and restaurants and that sort of thing. So um, I guess, you know, the cold weather just really highlighted how little people know about how important it is to have those resources available. They seem, you know, simple and they're temporary. It's only for a few months. It doesn't typically get this cold, but yeah. Yeah, and that transportation issue gets even more acute if it's snowy and icy and you can't even get people mm-hmm. where you're trying to get them to go uh, in the first place. Paul, how did how did Seattle do? Well, it's it's worth noting that, you know, snow and, and cold temperatures are sort of a predictable thing in winter, and yet it seems like every time city government is sort of caught off guard by winter weather. Mm-hmm. And so we wound up setting up, you know, we had, we had date like separate generally daytime and nighttime shelters set up mostly in the downtown core. There was one in Lake city. There was one in West Seattle as well. Um, not massive capacity. And the ones in downtown Seattle were m- more full than the ones kind of further afield um, in part because, you know, it's just a lot to ask people to move into shelters where you don't have a, quasi-private sleeping area and storage for your stuff. People don't want to just leave their tents and emergency supplies and sleeping bags and somewhere and, you know, get to a shelter and risk losing all that. And then B, it's hard to get to the shelters because, you know, transportation is hard. The city gave out Metro bus tickets, but those weren't useful if a bus line was canceled or, or if it was running really sporadically, they're only slightly helpful. Um, there were volunteers from the city um, out driving vans, um, and if someone was in a wheelchair and needed a van with a, a lift, that was harder to come by because the city needed volunteers with commercial driver's licenses to drive those vans. And a lot of the people with commercial driver's licenses were handling the snow plows, which was another essential service. Mm. Um, it was in, and then, you know, not to mention that running separate daytime and nighttime shelters means that you need to get people between them when you know the the change of guard comes along um which was another disincentive for people to go to shelters because you know in some cases the shelters were you know a long way apart um so in in general it was it was not ideal um and you know the recommendations that people unsheltered people kind of passed along were things like you know, for instance, Health One, which is a fire department program, was giving people hot drinks and blankets and hand warmers and stuff where they were. That's a helpful thing, you know, finding people where they are so they don't have to move their stuff and making sure they have harm prevention or harm reduction supplies is useful. And then also having daytime and nighttime shelters be in the same place is another potentially good thing. But um we need to plan ahead for that. We have the benefit of potentially the King County Regional Homelessness Authority taking over as of this year, mm-hmm. responsibility for running shelters, and maybe they can plan ahead more than the city has um, so that we don't have to just sort of make up a plan on the fly um, so that you have more uptake of shelter options when, they, when they're when they needed. 
Yeah. Esme Jimenez, what are your takeaways about this? To Isabel and Paul's points, like this is a very reactive system as opposed to one that's proactively planning beforehand. Um, homelessness has been an issue, an issue in the Seattle area for a long time, as well as throughout the Puget Sound region. Winter is predictably during the winter time. <laughs> so surely things could be planned out better ahead of time. There's always going to be immediate challenges that are going to be much harder to immediately respond to. But some of the broad swaths, I think, could be planned out, whether that's actually making sure things making sure things are connected and making sure, again, those systems for daytime shelters versus nighttime shelters, if those are even two miles away, like that's a huge barrier immediately to someone actually being able to stay warm during this entire cold, um, cold moments. So those are times that I'm just like, we do in Seattle to both instill with city leaders um, that, that this can be something that should be planned out and taken care of more reasonably. Yeah, Esme, as predictable as it is, as you just said it is, what do you think uh, stop, uh, you know, prevents better planning of, uh, for the predictable? That is tough, right? Like that's trying to plan for the unexpected can be very scary. And I think for city governments, when there's a lot of money and there's a lot of agencies attached, you have to CC 12 people, you have to have a meeting to have a meeting on something. Like that is going to create roadblocks. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know that there have other there have been other places that have done this well. So I believe that there are experts that are already working on this. We don't necessarily need to recreate the wheel, so to speak. Mm-hmm. That's Esme Jimenez, uh, Seattle Times mental health reporter, uh, a beat that I just I, I love it. I'm so glad you're on. We're going to talk more about it in just a moment, Esme. We've also got Everett, the Everett Herald's uh, cities reporter, Isabella Breda, with us and Publicola's police accountability reporter, Paul Kiefer. And we're, as we do on Friday, we're coming together and figuring out what happened this week and what it means. We are going to take a short break and be right back with more Week in Review. Don't go away. I'm Bill Radke with Publicola's Paul Kiefer, Everett Herald's Isabella Breda, and uh, at the Seattle Times, mental health reporter Esme Jimenez, you wrote this week about an Orcas Island man who uses TikTok and a gray furry sock puppet to help a lot of people. So picture a squirrel looking out at a steady Pacific Northwest rain talking about how awful life can seem. You know, when we're in darkness, I think it's easy to get stuck there. It's like when you're in a nightmare, you have no idea you're dreaming. You think you're stuck there forever. Trust that this too will pass. That the extent to which you can suffer is the extent to which you can also experience joy, love, wholeness. Trust the survivor in you that's so strong and fierce. Or just let it all go, just for a moment, and look at this, this winter storm. It's chilly, windy and wet, and gorgeous. This is happening right now. I love it. And so do so do a lot of people, especially young people, ask me. But first, I got to ask, why a squirrel apparently from Boston? Oh, that artist is named Evan Wagner Lynch. And like you said, he's from Orcas Island. He actually found that squirrel puppet in a bin at a Goodwill. And he was like, I'm going to grab this. I don't know what I want to do with it yet, but like, I'm going to hold on to something. And he said he's always been wanting to do kind of like a Mr. Rogers style show, but for adults. 
Um, and as he was uncovering more about his mental health and healing and wellness, he was like, I wonder if I could mix this all up together into something. Then of course, April, 2020 hit, he was like, well, now that opportunity to do something with someone else is gone, but I guess I could use my cell phone and I have the squirrel puppet. So maybe like, what would I say? And he said, as he was playing with that squirrel puppet, he was like, ah, oh, okay. I know what I want to do with this. Mm. Um, so that's how you get squirrel dialogues. This really um, viral TikTok account that I stumbled upon totally scrolling through TikTok. I will, I, I did that. I <laughs> was scrolling and then I suddenly was like, wow, this stuffed furry creature got me to take a deep breath. <laughs> Wonder, hey, why am I on my phone? You know, what, are there healthier things that I could be doing? Like, huh. <laughs> So I told my editor about it and I was like, you know what? I think this is something interesting to talk about. It's local and it's really resonating with teens and a lot of Gen Z folks. And I could see even Paul and Isabella as we're on the Zoom call, like their faces relaxed. They looked away, they smiled. And I was like, we need a little bit of something like that. <laughs> Not so long ago, I tweeted that I really wanted an adult version of Sesame Street or, or, or Mr. Rogers. I didn't know that I would want it to be a Muppet who sounds like Christopher Walken. But, you know, it, <laughs> it so happens that that's awesome. Uh, Isabella, yeah, did you, uh, did, did you feel relaxed or something else uh, by, by the oh, school? Yeah. yeah, no, 100%. And I had never come across this TikTok um, until recently, but just scrolling through the videos, I just kept watching one after another and it's like, okay, like breathing. Oh, looking in a river. Like it's so simple and it just takes you out of the moment and allows you to like decompress and it's goofy. So it makes you feel like you don't have to take things so seriously. It's refreshing. Yeah. And people say that they, fans of it say they feel safe. I can, I can talk about the concepts that that this squirrel is discussing, you know, the Buddhist philosophy and 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 right and psychology, and and it would and I can talk and talk at my kids, but I think they'd probably rather hang out with the squirrel on this topic. And I love Esme that you that you, uh, you know, we we get down on social media sometimes, and totally. right, and it, so it was so it was refreshing to see that, and also. I really liked how you conveyed this this artist's sense of he talks about the need for for how many people out there I think he he described it as sort of hopeful but heartbreaking and hopeful at the same time the he, how in touch he's gotten with the scale of suffering how hopeless and lonely people are in a way that we don't always land on when we're talking about hey the news of the week right but but it's it's so vital. I'm sorry. I'm talking about your beat. I, I would like you to say more about why you found that. Why you? Why do you find this so important? But I appreciate it. Well, to me, mental health is this universal thing. Like we all have physical health and we all have mental health. That those are the same thing. They're not different things. Our mental health affects our physical health. Um, and I think more and more this last year, more people have understood. Wow, I know now what anxiety feels like. Right. Mm -hmm. Or if you went through really traumatic things, PTSD. Um, depression, hopelessness, like these are symptoms, but they also are mental illnesses in some ways. Um, so I think that overlap kind of lets in, lets us talk about bigger things in not such a scary way. I think the stigmatization of um, very severe mental illness, right, um, as this bizarre and scary thing um, suddenly can be opened up when you realize too, like you have suffered as well, this pandemic, the pain, the death, that is very real. Um, and it's painful to talk about, but 
the way to get through this is to get through this and talk about it. And so that's what I'm hoping that the beat can do then talking about mental health more with people. We can look both at systemic issues um, and how they interpersonally affect everyone. Yeah. Thank you for doing that. Before we leave this topic, Esme, you also wrote about how hard it is to know when your mind isn't working well for you, which I think of as just the human condition, uh, you know, not knowing when my mind, my own mind is not serving me very well. But there is a specific neurological diagnosis uh, here as well. Yes, yes, yes. So I wrote about anisinosia. It's kind of this really clunky word, but it effectively is a phenomenon that actually occurs with, again, severe mental illness. But it also occurs with people who have traumatic brain injuries, with people who are having dementia. It's just essentially the brain not being able to recognize itself. So the way that one doctor explained it to me is, so we can all take like photos, almost think of it as a metaphor of a camera. We can all point our camera and take a photo. Um, but can we develop that photo? Can we go back to the dark room and see what we saw? Mm. Um, with people who have anosinosia, they can't develop that per se. They took the photo, but it's just not showing up for them. So if you tell them, you know, hey, Paul, I wanted to talk to you. I feel like maybe, you know, you're showing symptoms of X, Y, and Z, some severe illness like schizophrenia, bipolar. Um, and you'll say, but I feel fine. I'm fine. Like maybe you're the crazy one, you know, mm. and anosinosia is not like denial. It's not the same thing. Um, denial is more of like a psychological structure that we use to to protect ourselves. But anisinosia has to do specifically with the brain not being able to register itself being harmed. And that's really tricky because when you create policies and you say, well, we want to make sure people willingly choose treatment if they cannot again actually develop that photo of themselves as being ill, they're never going to seek treatment. It's actually impossible for them to want to go seek treatment if they don't think of themselves as ill. Um, and this is something that I wanted to write about because I think policymakers and more people should need to kind of understand some of the finer intricacies so that in the pipeline of finding some kind of solution, we can say, well, well, this is the first issue, right? We don't talk about anisinosia, then really develop good policies around it. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, uh, we could talk so much more about anisinosia. Um, we're, we're, I'm looking at the clock, and I want to I hit a few more things on our Week in Review program, but you can read more of Esme's uh, mental health work, uh, reporting work. Uh, in the Seattle Times, and uh, by the way, A-N-O-S-O-G-N-O-S-I-A, a uh, new word oh. to start our new year. And a new year means new laws. I want to just make a little time to, if, if someone wants to sort of hit one of the new laws that take effect in 2022, Isabella, you were uh, up in the, at the Everett Herald. You've been looking, especially interested in the Native American mascot issue. And there's yeah, a new so law. Covered, yeah, yeah. The Tulalip tribes, and uh, this has been an ongoing discussion since that was signed into law last June, I believe, um, which is changing any mascots that use like Native American images that can be like mascots, logos, just like anything you're using for sports, for a school. Um, Basically, the intent was that, you know, these symbols shouldn't be used in educational environments. Uh, Oftentimes, they're tokenizing uh, Native American people. And so at Tulalip, you know, uh, the tribes, the board of directors asked the school district to change two of the school's mascots, the Toto Middle School Thunderbirds, Marysville Pilchuck High School Tomahawks. Uh, They did go through the process. There was a mascot committee. It was formally organized, uh, mainly made up of students that went through and changed uh, or came to a decision, picked a new mascot for each of the schools. And those were presented in December, um, which Totem Middle School picked a new mascot. They're now the Phoenix. 
but Marysville Pilchuck is still hung up because there's kind of a debate within the tribe and it's a generational one, uh, whether or not the mascot is something that they want to hang on to because, uh, you know, some elders have a sense of pride in the mascot. They think, you know, back in the day, they didn't feel seen in school because there's only a handful of tribal members attending the school. Um, and then there's the youth that are coming forward and saying, you know, hey, we've experienced blatant racism as a result of the mascot. Um, you know, there's students from the Tulalip tribes that have been playing sports for the school and just felt like they had to grow a thick skin um, because they're having, you know, war calls made in their direction. And they've just felt like, you know, this is our opportunity to start making a change and not have that overt racism happening in our schools. Um, but then there was a vote at the semi-annual general council meeting at the tribes where most of the elders were the ones in support of keeping the mascots. And the tribes reversed their initial decision asking the school district to change the mascot. And, and the then, mascot, you know, Isabella, the to- you were talking about war calls, tomahawks. the tomahawks. Yep. Uh, so what, why did the, the typically elder um, tribal members, what, what did they say about why they felt a sense of, you know, it's not especially local, right? It's not really a Coast Salish thing, tomahawks, yeah. and it's such a specific kind of warlike image. What, 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 what did they get? What, why, why did they uh, appreciate that uh, mascot? Yeah, so the tomahawks were never used by the Coast, Coast Salish tribes um, historically. And so that's been something that I've been trying to figure out, too, which it's not necessarily clear from some of the elders I've spoken with why they're particularly tied to that. Um, for them, it's more of just that there was any sort of Native American symbol that they felt they could identify with that was existing in the school. Mm. Um, yeah. And mm. again, it goes back to back in the day, their fight in schools was being seen. Mm. And now that, you know, sensibilities have changed and people are coming forward and saying, you know, this is harmful. Uh, the students and a lot of other tribal members feel that now is the time to make the change. So again, it's just becoming a intergenerational debate. Yeah. Um, uh, S.B. Jimenez, what's a new state law 2022 that you want to highlight? Probably already noticed it, but if you've got uh, any food deliveries this week or got food, you didn't get any utensils. Um, I saw a friend of mine. She's like, oh, they forgot our stuff in here. Like, mm. we can get a fork. And I was like, oh, you have to ask for that now. Probably should have mentioned to you that before you ordered. Yes. <laughs> so you could have asked for those utensils. But, yeah, we're trying to reduce plastic waste. And that's one of the things that's changing this week. Yeah. Or this New year, life. rather. But this first week of the year. You have to ask for it and consider, do you really need to ask for it? Um, Paul, what about, um, I mean, m- meaning, do you really need that? Uh, do you really need that, that plastic utensil is what I mean. Uh, Paul, what's another 2022 uh, Washington state law? You know me, I can't get away from from policing. Um, so new law, um, when police officers detain someone who's um, underage, under the age of 18, they're now required to give that um, person access to an attorney via a phone call, um, generally going to be accessible through a hotline. And when this bill was up for debate in the legislature last year, the you know law enforcement's argument was that that would be a a burden um, in the investigative process. You know, if they spot someone who they think might have, I don't know, stolen a car or something. Um, they don't want to have to deal with like even if they're not going to detain the person completely they don't want to have to deal with giving someone an attorney just for basic questioning but youth youth rights advocates said this is you know that young people are uh, unusually vulnerable uh, uniquely vulnerable in interactions with police whether it's a detention or not and so um it is 
therefore their right to have an attorney and and they are obligated to be given access to one. And um, so we will have a new hotline available and we'll see if across the state, this means that police wind up just stopping fewer young, young people. Um, in Seattle, we're already seeing sort of a, a downward trend in the number of teenagers specifically being referred to um, diversion programs because the police department is just simply, as far as I can tell, arresting fewer people for things like driving related crimes and, and minor shoplifting, um, which tend to skew younger. And so, you know, we'll, we'll, it'll be hard to track the exact pattern that this, that this bill could create, but. Um, and Seattle does have a new city attorney. Is that, is that a factor? Yeah, but you know, the city attorney doesn't operate in a vacuum and yeah, yeah. um you know, it's it's on some level a matter of, of law enforcement priorities, and on some level, it's a matter of of capacity. And I think across the board, um, you know, it's it's sort of a wait and see. Yeah. Uh, but it, you know, it, it is a victory certainly for sort of the youth rights sphere that that uh, this hotline or this 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 requirement is now online as of this year. Okay, new state law there. By the way, speaking of Seattle uh, city attorney, we just heard this morning that King County's prosecutor is not going to run for re-election, which is quite interesting. We're, we're right out of time to talk about that, but we might discuss more uh, what that might mean next week on Week in Review. We've only got, you know, we've got about a minute left. I don't think I'm hardly going to. Anybody have a, a, a smile they want to they wanna share? One thing that made them smile at the end of the week? Uh, Isabella's cat uh, on, the, on the Zoom. I loved. I, I've oh, I've got I've got one just that um, John Ryan, KOW reporter John Ryan, told me something I didn't know this week that not only could we have flooding because of all the snow and rain, but uh, this week we've had extra high tides called King tides. It's kind of amazing to me that when the barometer drops and atmospheric air pressure goes down, the ocean will expand beyond what tide tables may have forecast. It's kind of like when you lift your head off a pillow, the pillow rises. Even though I have one of the mushy pillows that doesn't rise, I understood him and I learned something that we live on a memory foam ocean. Um, and uh, we're, we are right out of time. I got to say my goodbyes. I'll just say that I smile every week on when I get a chance to talk uh, to journalists like you. And I'm so appreciative that you came and shared your, uh, your knowledge with us again this week. Paul and Esme and Isabella, thank you so much. Thank you, Bill. Thank you. Great to have you. That's Esme Jimenez, mental health reporter at Seattle Times. Paul Kiefer, police accountability reporter at Publicola. Isabella Breda, city's reporter at Every Everett Herald. And the show's produced by Kevin Kniestad and Sarah Leibovitz with social media and live streaming by Juan Pablo Chiquiza and Tio Popescu. Thanks for listening. I'm Bill Radke. Before you go, starting next week, you won't just get local news at noon on Fridays. Our daily noon day news show has returned with a new name and a new great host. So catch Soundside with host Libby Dankman starting Monday, the 10th at noon. I'm Bill Radke.